Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary Haid Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... I think there's more that we can do. One thing is to use the Magnitsky law to identify everyone who is connected with the persecution of Navalny so that they are are listed. We learn about the legacy of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who was reported dead last Friday in the Arctic prison where he was serving a 30-year term. Also, And the other thing that we know is that boys and girls don't actually consistently learn different, so that's not established in the science, but the idea continues to persist in the community. Single-sex versus co-ed schooling, a hot topic of debate more recently, and we dive deeper into the arguments to find out why it causes such a divide. And later today... This has been a grassroots, community-led campaign. Many people have had to do many things. And, of course, there's been a few of us that have had to be at the pointy end. But everything that everybody did, all corners of our community have stepped up. Aged care residents in Byron Bay are getting ready to move back in to what was formerly known as Ferros Aged Care Village. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, this week, journalist and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange will face the High Court in London in efforts to prevent his extradition to the US. If convicted, Assange faces a maximum 175 years in prison, and this may be his final chance at freedom. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie will attend the hearing in London and The Wire's contributor from Bay FM, Dr John Jiggins, spoke to Mr Wilkie about Australia's most recent statement on Julian Assange. Government's recent change in position uh, in response to my motion calling for the US and UK to, to drop the matter and let Julian come home. The fact that the government voted strongly in favour of that motion uh, in fact, I think the final numbers were 86 for, 42 against. Uh, the fact that the following day, in response to a question from me in question time, the Prime Minister personally stood up and gave his clearest and strongest position statement yet about this having gone on too long. All of that shows that the government, at least, has shifted its position. Now, whether or not that's being noticed in uh, London or Washington is unknown, but I think it very, very hard for them to to ignore such a, a clear position now by the Australian government that this has gone on too long. While you're in London, will you be seeking a talk with James Cleverley, the Home Secretary of England and Wales, who has a final decision on the extradition? Regrettably, I'll only be on the ground in London uh, for about 14 hours, so there won't be time to meet with the British government officials uh, or, or members of the British Parliament. Uh, and although I, I have been invited to meet with the Australian High Commissioner, there just won't be time. So my focus will be the courtroom and the court hearing. And I think that's important nonetheless, because it, it's important Australian parliamentarian bears witness to what's going on. I think the very important point that now a clear majority of the Australian Parliament, including the Australian Government and the Prime Minister personally, are all of the view that regardless of what you think about Julian Assange, the fact is he's been incarcerated in one way or another for oh, 12 years or so, you know, the matter has gone on long enough that the extradition should 
There was a bit of dissatisfaction with the Albanese government that they were just saying enough is enough and uh, there was a feeling that they were just gaslighting Assange supporters. So what's been your impression of them? Uh, look, I, I think the criticism of the federal government has been warranted. Uh, I think until recently they were saying lots of things, but uh, I've seen no evidence of any, uh, of any hard work on their behalf. And I think that's why the parliament's strong support for the motion is so significant, because it clearly indicates a significant shift in the government's position. The parliament's position, you know, there's no obligation on the government for the, to, obviously or the parliament to act on a motion, but I think the importance of it is is that it was such a clear, strong statement finally. Uh, and interestingly, the day after the motion, I asked a question to the Prime Minister in question time, and he stood up personally and alone, you know, not just one of 86 people voting for something, he stood up personally and alone at the Satch box, and he made a very clear, strong statement in support uh, of Assange. That's never been done before, and I thought, well, I, I know that will not go unnoticed uh, at the US British, or the US Embassy, the British High Commission, and through them to London and Washington. I noticed that one of the people who abstained from voting was Barnaby Joyce, who had, well, seems to have been a very strong voice for Assange. Do you know why that happened? No, I don't know, and someone's going to have to ask Barnaby. Uh, to Barnaby's credit, he has been for a long time a very strong supporter uh, of Assange. Not, not in that he particularly likes Assange. I, I, I think he said that he doesn't particularly like him at all. But, but Barnaby, for years, he has has called for the or for the charges against Assange to be dropped, the extradition to be dropped, and for Assange to be released. But he didn't vote in one way or the other for the motion was uh, was very disappointing. And I'm just speculating now, John. I mean, some some members of the opposition claim that the motion was too anti-US, which I could only I could only think they haven't read the motion because I don't know how you can draw that conclusion. I suppose it was also the issue that Barnaby would have had to cross the floor, and given that he's a you know, he's an important figure in the opposition. He might have felt that crossing the floor was a step too far, so he decided to to step out. It, it, you know, someone in that position in, in a political party, and, and let's face it, he's been in the news lately for all the wrong reasons, he decided to keep a low profile. Although I think his efforts to keep a low profile have probably shone a light, in, a light on him because everyone's asking why didn't he vote, uh, why didn't he vote in support of the motion. That was Independent MP Andrew Wilkie speaking with Bay FM's Dr John Jiggins. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. Last Friday, it was reported Russian opposition leader and lawyer Alexei Navalny died at the Arctic prison where he was serving a 30-year term. He was known as one of the most powerful rivals to the Putin regime and Navalny is said to have served as an important figure for democracy in Russia. To learn more about Navalny's legacy, The Wire's Eduardo Jordan spoke to Dr Robert Horvath, Senior Lecturer in Politics at La Trobe University. My first reaction was shock. 
I hadn't expected him to die at that moment. Um, I knew that he had appeared in a video of a court session the previous day, and he seemed fine then. He was joking. And so to hear that he was dead 24 hours later was a shock. And how will he be remembered in Russia? I think he'll be remembered for many things. He'll be remembered as a, an incredibly brave man who couldn't be broken, who always stood for his convictions, who made no compromises. He'll also be remembered as an incredibly talented politician, someone who could talk to anyone, someone who was very skilled at building bridges and alliances. And all of this was something that made him particularly threatening to Vladimir Putin, who relied on a kind of politics of divide and rule. And I think he'll also be remembered for exposing the scale of the corruption of the Putin regime. Navalny's video documentary about Putin's corruption, titled A Palace for Putin, probably did more damage to Putin's reputation. It tore away the facade that he's this patriot who believes in traditional values. Now, he wasn't the only person who has been against the system in Russia. Who else has been in a similar position against Vladimir Putin, you think? There are an, a large number of public figures, intellectuals, politicians, lawyers, and human rights activists who have resisted the Putin regime in different ways. Many of them have suffered violence of one kind or another. Some of the most famous, like Navalny, have been killed. Today, several figures within Russia who are in prison, but who are really important politicians who have resisted Putin and who, if the Putin regime collapses, then they are likely to have a, a very prominent place in Russian public life. One of the best known is Ilya Yashin. Um, he's someone who's still young. He recently turned 40, but he's been involved in the opposition to Putin for nearly 20 years. He started off as a student activist, and he's very charismatic. He's very brave. He's very intelligent. Um, he's thought deeply about how a transition to a, a post-Putin order could be managed. Another is Vladimir Karamurza. He's more of an intellectual. He played a central role in making the Magnitsky laws possible, the laws adopted by countries around the world that punish individuals who are involved in serious human rights abuses and corruption. An interesting time around Alexei Navalny was the Navalny crisis in 2020. Why did it create controversy against Vladimir Putin? Essentially, the Navalny crisis was what happened after Navalny was poisoned with the banned chemical weapon Novichok. And it became clear that, that could only have happened on orders from Putin. If Navalny had been run over by a taxi, then it's very difficult to say that Putin must have been behind that. But the technology behind that chemical weapon that was used against Navalny made it clear that the Russian state was behind it. How do you see Russia's future in terms of uh, democracy now that Navalny passed away? And what's Australia's position in, in, in this issue? Firstly, regarding Russia's potential for becoming a democracy, it's been made more complicated by Navalny's death. Navalny was 
a figure with such an international reputation and such a level of popularity within Russia. There were so many people who admired his bravery, particularly in returning to Russia after he'd nearly killed by the poisoning, that in the event of the Putin regime collapsing, he was in a really strong position to emerge as a leader of a post-Putin Russia. On the other hand, I have a kind of optimism about the, the possibility for a democratic Russia. Regarding Australia's response, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has made a very eloquent statement about Navalny's death. I think there's more that we can do. One thing is to use the Magnitsky law to identify everyone who was connected with the persecution of Navalny. I think another thing could be symbolic. In the past, some Western governments have renamed squares, streets, thoroughfares after victims of political persecution. I think it would be a wonderful thing to name the street outside the Russian embassy in Canberra after Navalny. That was Dr Robert Horvath from La Trobe University speaking with The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM. To our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio and to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. Sydney Boys Private School, Newington College, sparked national debate last month as parents and former students protested the school's decision to become co-educational by 2033. The topic of whether same-sex schooling or co-ed schooling offers better education for students has long been considered by the likes of parents and educators. The Wire's Tony Pankalewicz spoke with Dr Jessica Keane, lecturer in Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney, to learn more about the arguments behind single-sex versus co-ed schooling. There's no conclusive evidence that single-sex schooling or co-ed schooling is better for students in terms of educational outcomes. The reason that there's no clear conclusive evidence is because schools are really complex places. As we all know, having gone to school, there's a lot more at play than just the gender of your peers. And so isolating gender and thinking that that would be the single ingredient that had an impact on academic outcomes, it's just not something that science has been able to prove either way. What is established Established in literature, though, is the impact that social class can have on school outcomes, which basically means that where there are families or school communities where there are particularly high levels of education or income, or where the schools are particularly well resourced, we know that that does have an impact on the educational outcomes of the students. Now, does this debate differ when it comes to primary and secondary schooling? Like, is there a different discourse when it comes to the younger kids versus older kids? Yeah, it definitely seems to be. In New South Wales, where I'm from, it's much more common to have co-educational primary schools. And the majority of parents don't seem to have any problem sending their 5 to 12-year-olds to co-educational school environments. But the change seems to happen in New South Wales anyway when it's heading into high school and where we do have in New South Wales quite a high number of single-sex, both government and non-government schools. 
so it's interesting to think about what the factors might be there about why people think that it starts to be important to send their children to single-sex environments. I think it probably has a lot to do with social attitudes around teenagers and assumptions, um, well, frankly, assumptions that teenagers are likely to be heterosexual and that the opposite sex might be distracting, or assumptions that there are different things that boys and girls need to learn. And firstly, obviously, we know that not all students are going to be straight. And the other thing that we know is that boys and girls don't actually consistently learn different. So that's not established in the science. But the idea continues to persist in the community. And people, I think when they're thinking about those senior levels of schooling, they do start to worry that perhaps boys and girls might need different kinds of things from their schools in order to get good outcomes. But that part of it really isn't there in the literature. Now, Newington College, there was protests. What was that about? And can you talk us more about what the anger was all about? Yes. So Newington College is a pretty elite, prestigious, historically boys school in Sydney. And they've announced that they will be transitioning to fully co-ed over the next few years. Some parents and community have embraced that, but some parents and community of Newington College have been quite upset about it. Yeah, there were some high profile protests at the first day of school the other week, where some old boys, as they call themselves, and some parents were picketing the front of the school and um, standing there with signs protesting the decision. So some of the protests seems to have have been about process where parents or community were concerned that there hadn't been good consultation. I can't really speak to that. But some of the protesters were concerned that this move was about, that some of the protesters used the word woke ideology or that one protester talked about it as being part of the toxic masculinity nonsense. And what I took them to mean by that was that they feel threatened by a general move in communities towards more inclusion, more feminism, more conversations about gender diversity, and they feel like that's being imposed upon them by the school's decision. So that's what I got the sense of from the protesters. What concerns me about that is the impression that they're giving, that they think that this inclusion or this feminism is in some way bad for boys and that it's being imposed on boys and it's going to have bad outcomes on boys. Whereas I actually think that more gender inclusivity, more open conversations about different ways that people are, more feminism. I think all of these things are actually good for boys and young men. And in the research that I've been doing, where I've been talking to young men about their experiences of masculinity, there is a lot of conversations out there from young men about the gender norms that are being imposed on them and how uncomfortable it makes them. And I think more gender inclusivity, more feminism, exactly more what these protesters are calling woke ideology. I think that's exactly what these young men need and want. Dr Jessica Keane from the University of Sydney there, speaking with The Wire's Tony Pankalewick. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. Residents of the former Ferros Aged Care Village in Byron Bay are getting ready to move back in, having won a long-winded legal battle after a number of residents refused to leave. Around 80 people gathered in Byron's Marvel Hall last week to celebrate the village being kept for its original intended purpose as an aged care facility. The wise contributor from Bay FM, Mia Armitage, spoke to founder of Friends and Family of Ferros residents, Marie Eddings, about how they celebrated their win. 
Thank you so much. This has been a grassroots community-led campaign. Many people have had to do many things. And, of course, there's been a few of us that have had to be at the pointy end. But everything that everybody did, write a letter, make a phone call, send food. I mean, we remember that you know, the Mullumbimby District Neighbourhood Centre was feeding the resident because of the food got so bad. So all corners of our community have stepped up. We had a GoFundMe who funded all of this. We would just like to say firstly to the community how grateful we are. I know the residents spoke very often about how blown away they were by how supportive the community was. And I know personally if that community support wasn't there, it would have been much harder for them. It's just been really difficult for all of them. I don't think anyone really understands what they've had to deal with over the last 11 months, the environment they were put in. But knowing the community was behind them really made a massive difference. This is much a win for every single person who has ever spoken about it, shared about it. It's a win for everybody. We are relieved that a beautiful company has come in. The residents, I think, are blown away by how well they're being taken care of. We've observed that the calibre of people that work in this organisation is a much greater calibre than what we've been dealing with from not just the CEO and the board members and all the way through the operations people, but the gardeners and the contractors and the cleaners. Everyone who's there is very focused on putting a beautiful care system back in place and we're very very grateful for that. So Andrew is that not for profit? That's also not for profit yes. Are there very many not for profit organisations around running aged care homes? Yeah the aged care sector is very fragmented but there are a significant amount of not for profits. Church groups, there's private equity groups which is part of the issue. It's a very fragmented industry where the legislation which is about to be changed is very much geared towards the care provider and not the residents. Like one of the things that we uncovered which it's not unique to us in our experience is that if someone does breach a resident's rights there's nothing that really happens. The current government which we're really grateful for are swinging that pendulum back so that the resident's rights actually mean something and that the system will start to be more focused on them rather than trying to support and proffer up the care providers. We must remember this is a taxpayer funded system. Some renos happening and you mentioned uh, that you're really impressed with the new contractors and the gardeners and everything. Could you let us know a little bit about what they're actually doing? Absolutely. St Andrews were officially announced, I think it was on the 21st of December, and then between Christmas and New Year, their team was there measuring things up. So one of the cottages has been fully empty for a number of months. That's nearly finished its renovation. I think what they're doing is fixing some things that hadn't been attended to in the past, so it's all being rewired, there's new flooring, brand new air conditioners are going through. It's going to be digitised, so they're all going to have beautiful new televisions, it's all being painted. There's actually nothing really wrong with the buildings. It's really a facelift and some sustainable things we've been put in place that will last longer. So we're expecting that that cottage will be finished in the next week or 10 days and new people will begin to come in. So we're already having new residents come back in, which is very exciting. Most people who've lived there live out their life there, despite some of the narrative going around at the time. This is not a place where people move out. They do live to end of life there and they have a really really great life. Um, I wanted to do a bit of a shout out to your dad <laughs> Mick Eddings because I didn't realise until I heard or maybe I'd forgotten um, but Mark Swivel was saying that your dad um, played a few games at least for the former Fitzroy Club. Um, so I, I have to confess here, I'm a big uh, Lions supporter <laughs> coming from me being a Queenslander. So go, 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 your dad. It was a long, long time ago. I think he might have been 19 or 20. Well, um, long time ago. Yeah, he's yeah. a legend in more ways than one for me personally. <laughs> Look, but, they're all legends yeah. and their life stories are, are incredible, like everyone's, but it's 
being able to help them polish their memories and get them re in touch with who they are and how strong they are has just been a really beautiful experience. I wondered how your dad, though, given he's your dad, so he's the one that you're the closest to of yeah. the um, eight who, who managed to stick it out all this time. Um, how, how's he been? Look, Dad really suffered. Dad's a prolific reader. He probably reads two to three books a week. And as I think Mark said in his interview, he has a memory. He will recite poetry that he's probably heard once. He wasn't able to read. He had lots of issues with his mental health. I'm really happy to see him relaxed and he's smiling again. And they all are. But when it's your dad, it's like it's hard to watch. But he was never going to leave. He was never going to let the bullies win. I was just with them before at morning tea and they're laughing and their shoulders look relaxed. He's sleeping, he's reading. So that's beautiful to witness. Founder of Friends and Family of Ferros Residents, Marie Eddings there, speaking with Bay FM's Mia Armitage. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbul and Yuggera countries on which this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. As always, thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire. <laughs>